Thank you for listening to the Weekly Market Outlook. It is our pleasure to bring an industry-leading market analyst to provide you with the most value possible in your farm business. Please reach out anytime by emailing cbaron at agviewsolutions.com. Good morning. This is Joe Paulson, guest hosting the Agview Pitch. And um, this morning we're going to visit with uh, Jared Creed, who just came off the Pro Farmer Tour. Um, good morning, Jared. How are you? I'm doing well, Joe. Thank you for the invite. And uh, I think I told you last time I was on with you that it was uh, a refresher to not have to listen to Chris's voice all the time, right? <laughs> right <on. laughs> well, we'll try and fill his shoes here the best we can, I guess. You bet. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, Tell us about your experience on the Pro Farmer Tour um, and, um, you know, what that process was kind of like and, um, you know, what you saw. Yeah, so a little review of the tour. Uh, The Western Tour starts in Sioux Falls, makes its way down to Grand Island, over to Nebraska City up to Spencer, Iowa, and then ends in Rochester, Minnesota on Thursday. So four full days. And there's also an eastern leg of the tour, uh, moving through Ohio, Indiana, into Illinois, eastern Iowa, and southeast Minnesota. Um, Collectively, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say that there was 1,400 total samples collected amongst both uh, sides of the tour. That's obviously a very, very large number and competes with anybody else that is out and about taking uh, any type of objective yield views on crop potential. But the main piece to remember here, um, kind of sharing the story of what the pro farmer crop tour is, and then in comparison to pro farmers own yield estimates, the crop tour is, in my opinion, more of an indication of a direction of yield. As in, you're not going out there to try to prove that a crop is higher or lower or steady. Uh, you're taking an assessment of actually just what you see across all those samples. And then, based upon 30-some years now of data from that tour, you're able to measure changes year-on-year on, year on multiple different facets from ear count, grain length, grain uh, kernels around, on soybeans, you're obviously taking just a, a measurement of pods. There's not quite the uh, similar calculation that you have in corn to translate it into a yield potential. I think it's important to remember that the Pro Farmer Crop Tour uh, method for measuring yield is is not your old-fashioned kernels around times kernels long divided or you know multiplied times your population and using a kernel count of say 90,000 or 80,000. Uh, Instead, we're taking grain inches, and it's divided off. uh, um, It's basically it's using a 90,000 kernel count to to establish a yield estimate. But at the end of the day, those numbers are just compared to years and years and years worth of data. And on top of that, able to take all the past years of data against final USDA NAS yield. So I think it's important to remember that. You're still the, the sample process is incredibly random. You're trying to go every 12 to 15 miles, 
you make your first right or left, and you come up to your first corn and soybean field, and you get after it. Get past the end rows, get 30 paces in, take your sample, get back in the truck, go to the next one. There is no visiting the same farm year after year. So <clears throat> the takeaway from this year, uh, you know, that's kind of your process. That's a little bit of your background. Um, the takeaway from this year is that Southeast South Dakota, uh, you know, grows about a third of the state's crop is in dire straits, very, very dry. Arguably, I would say that it's as bad as 2012 with a caveat that you have to adjust today's technology and genetics to make up for the difference of what we had in 2012. Uh, you get into Nebraska, it's the same story. What I found very interesting in Nebraska is that the irrigated corn is just not up to stuff. And they've had to fight an enormous amount of challenges. And that's the other benefit of the tour. You gather a lot of information talking to numerous different farmers and agronomists throughout the time. That You, you know, you rewind the calendar. Uh, one of the pioneer agronomists, I think, said it perfectly. The the uh, planting season for 2022 started at the harvest of 21. And given the crop size last year, I don't think it's any secret that the uh, Midwest producer has fought uh, in the planting season this spring a lot of trash and residue from last year's crop. And on top of that, the Nebraska farmer fought wind, cold, and rainy conditions, pushed planting back a little bit. And then you had sporadic hailstorms move through the system. Two big ones came through in the first 10 to 12 days of June. And that dramatically impacted the decisions of the farmer from that point forward. Some individuals were forced to replant because of significant crop damage. Some individuals decided to stay status quo. I'll tell you one of the, the, the nastier pieces, the farmer again couldn't do much about it. Uh, there's no um, no doubt that we had problems with early residual or, or weed control early on in the season. That hailstorm did not do anybody favors. You know, common logic, it ruined the canopy, and I, I swear I've never walked in as much weedy farms in the state of Nebraska as we have this year. And to further that, some of these farms, especially on the irrigated side, that had that damage uh, – it's almost, it, it has the perception to me that the damage was done so early, the yield potential was being so much that it almost shut off the, the desire or the need to keep pumping water on a crop that did nothing but go backwards and not going to recover. With how dry Nebraska is, and that's incredibly evident, that's the story in dry land. Yeah, you still had some hail damage and corn, but all the dry land, I mean, it's ugly. I feel bad for them. It's so, so bad uh, from east to west, north to south. Yeah, you got a few pockets that are better, and maybe that has to do with some type of practices or just being the lucky individual to catch the moisture that the neighbor didn't. But I really do think that the amount of challenges that's been thrown to the Nebraska farmer is probably the number one storyline for a national yield. You know, Nebraska is producing close to, uh, you know, in between 8 to 9 million acres of corn a year. They're your number three or number four corn producer annually. And they got hurt bad. And when I talk about how much does the Nebraska crop impact the national scale, 
the, the crop production loss that I am firmly believer is gone in Nebraska can be as much as three bushel an acre nationally. It's probably two pretty easily. So I kind of speed up here, you know, from Nebraska, that's the big storyline. You make it into Western Iowa, uh, Western Iowa, I'd say would have an average crop that we would have been happy with in 2015. You look back at the last several years and there's been plenty of producers and counties that are yielding 220, 230, 240, upwards of 250, 260 farm averages. This year, I think 220, 230 farm averages is going to stop it. That's going to be hot. And there's going to be a lot of 190 to 210 bushel corn. You might say, that, that doesn't sound that bad. Well, when you compare it year on year, you know, Iowa yielded 205 last year. If you all of a sudden look at your western three districts, kind of starting in the northwest to the northeast, that's one, two, three, from west central Iowa over to east central Iowa, that's four, five, six, and obviously the same goes for the southern tier. But in districts one, four, and seven, far western Iowa, you have basically five million acres of corn there in the state. And the drought didn't stop at the Missouri River. Some of your severe weather didn't stop at the Missouri River. And for sure, the heat didn't stop. And again, talking to agronomists, they said, well, in this area, you know, for the growing season, we're running seven or eight days ahead on GDUs. And on top of that, the crop was planted seven to 10 days later than normal. That doesn't seem like a very good mix to me. And every single farm you walk through, with maybe the exception of parts of Minnesota, it's very evident that the crop is just going fast. It's just moving along very quickly. Uh, kernel depth is an issue. Ear length is an issue. You know, one other quick comment in Nebraska. Uh, I think that the string of good years in the last several years um, has maybe changed a few practices on dry land. It's all speculation here. Changed a few practices in dry land. Populations are higher, and it severely impacted ear size. Uh, while the flip side, uh, individuals who maybe have kept populations at lower levels, you know, I, I tell you that on average, if we got into a farm that was 18 to 22,000 final stand count, it was 99% of the time doing better than anything higher than 22,000 stand count. I'm not an agronomist, but that's a stat. That's a fact as well. So, you know, moving on from Iowa, Iowa, you know, you think about those districts, I think that you probably run the risk of several of those counties. Um, you know, if you got 99 counties in Iowa, 90 of them produce a crop. Uh, I think there's probably 30 to 40 counties in the state of Iowa that have every bit of potential of being at least 10 bushel off, if not closer to 20, 25 off the last couple year average. So that adds up pretty quickly. Also hampering the ability to uh, keep Iowa at anywhere near a trend yield. Um, you know, again, 205 was last year yield. In my opinion, I think your range in Iowa, based upon are we going to get rainfall here this weekend, if it doesn't, uh, there is a chance that Iowa could per perhaps slip as low as 190. Right now, I guess you probably just call it in the middle, call it 195, with eastern Iowa really having a good crop, but just not. Uh, there's going to be some records in eastern Iowa, but I don't think collectively it's going to be a record but it's not enough to make up for the holes in Western Iowa. Lastly, Minnesota, you know, the crop looked pretty darn good. Um, they've had the timely rains that uh, south of them have not. The further east you got away from South Dakota, North Dakota border, uh, the crop was better. Um, 
it's evidence that, you know, the Minnesota populations tend to always be higher on the tour and they've had the moisture to support that crop development. A lot of 200 bushel corn. Don't know if Minnesota is necessarily looking at a record, but it'll be awfully close. Uh, but at the end of the day, kind of wrap all that up on corn. It's uh, just nobody has the ability to make up for the drop in Iowa and the significant drop in Nebraska and the losses in Southeast South Dakota is just kind of like an, oh, for lack of better words, icing on a cake. Not uh, no disrespect to any listeners that are in Southeast South Dakota. It's obviously a tough environment, but it's just not helping. Uh, and I'll no. give you a one, uh, uh, sorry, the one sense from Go ahead. Beans. If beans get rain, they're going to be good. I don't know about national yield being a record, but there's a lot of potential out there in beans. Um, but you're going to have to get rain. And it's a fact that we have 50 million acres of beans between North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota. West of the Missouri River has just flat out been dry. And on top of that, there's nothing in the forecast for the next seven days. We're getting to that critical time frame, right? There's potential out there, but you're going to have to put some more rainfall on it a time or two. If that doesn't happen, then we'll start talking about some losses in the western corn belt bean acres uh, just because of, you know, 50% of the acres are in those states that it's rattled off. And that can have an impact pretty darn quick. You know, I, uh, I'm i up here in northern Illinois, and uh, just what I'm seeing around here kind of echoes, you know, your uh, synopsis of, like, eastern Iowa. I mean, I was extremely, um, you know, thinking it, the potential here was absolutely amazing. The stuff looks great. You know, when we were walking in here about two, three weeks ago, I was really excited. And then, uh, you know, we were out with my agronomist here the last uh, the last week, you know, taking some yield checks, and I was shocked at the amount of tip back. And we've had we've had absolutely fantastic rainfall, you know, an inch or two uh, almost weekly here for the last three, three weeks. There's some weird stuff going on. Um, you know, in in the corn crop, that's definitely shaving a little bit off. And then, you know, to echo your uh, your synopsis of the beans as well, is the beans just seem to continue to get better and better and better. I mean, you know, they're just putting on a ton of growth, leveling out. I mean, the bean, the bean crop looks really awesome. Uh, it, it's so, interesting. So. Last week when I was on with Chris, I shared the message that I was starting to receive a lot of concern about tipback related to, of all things, lack of solar radiation. I mean, hello, 2022. Let's just throw something else in the, in the basket to cause variability. Uh, what you just said, you know, I'm getting an inch or two of rain per week. If those are coming at night and just one system a week, that's all great. But I'm making the assumption that your tip back might not be related to heat. It might be more related to lack of sunshine. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, the rains come about, usually start about six, seven o'clock in the morning, and then we're, you know, cloudy the rest of the day. And yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. I'm not uh, suggesting that that's a, a massive detriment to the crop. It's probably, as you said, it's probably taking off the top end for individuals. And again, let me preface it for all your listeners. I'm the farthest thing away from an agronomist. 
<laughs> I'm not going to pretend to do that, uh, but I'm basically kind of regurgitating a lot of the different information that I collect over time. Uh, and it's just another sign that this, this crop is just the, the farmer is, in my mind has, I've always been optimistic more than a glass half full that the farmer overcomes the challenges thrown their way. They always have, but it just doesn't seem like that is possible this year from all of the battles that has been had. Um, you know, one more stat that I think is, is now pretty prevalent in my mind some of the crop modeling software that I use, um, you know, third-party uh, software, they, they basically laid out that once you get a, a, literally one degree above normal in the month of July, you start to see negative crop development. Now, one degree, that doesn't seem like much. We ended up being above one degree above normal temperatures on a production weighted average uh, view across all the Corn Belt on both daytime temps and nighttime temps. In years where the crop legitimately gets bigger from the trend, you know, trend is just a benchmark. Crop can get bigger or smaller from that from July 4th and forward. We're not getting bigger this year. And for that matter, the years that it does get bigger, you are always cooler than normal temperatures. So it's like a mix of temperatures, lack of sunlight, lack of rain. Uh, I mean, you name it. <laughs> Whereas some places, unfortunately, way too dry early and now just getting bombarded with rain over in like the Kentucky, Tennessee, Southern Ohio area. Um, so, you know, I, I rambled on there a lot, Joe. I apologize about that. But that's no, you're good. The, the takeaway, and I think there's two other pieces to, to make mention here of kind of the process. Uh, or maybe the the information that's going to come our way. So after the market closed on Friday, pro farmer themselves, ultimately just another yield estimate from a private firm outside of the government, they can use the data that they collect to on the tour to you know promote or to uh, provide their own estimate yield nationally. But the number that pro farmer puts out has it, it's not tied to the results of the daily release on the crop tour. Okay, so just kind of keeping those two separate. But mm -hmm. Pro Farmers National Yield Estimate was 168.1 in corn, uh, seven, almost seven and a half bushel lower than the last USDA NAS number, uh, and a couple tenths a bushel lower than the last B number. Now, on the August crop production report, it was heavily dependent on farmer survey, and I talked about this with Chris last week, and I think it's a good reminder again, and maybe a little bit of a soapbox comment here. Oh, the USDA is wrong. Oh, the USDA is wrong. Well, what are they wrong about? They're reporting the information that the farmer gave them. Correct. That's the August report. So fighting the government is basically, that's not going to work. But you think in all reality, the third week of July, what did the farmer perceive their crop potential to be versus reality today? Now you open the doors to the September crop report. That is the first month we will have OI data, objective yield data, in which USDA enumerators will be out in the field taking real samples, looking at populations, ear counts, ear weight, 
Uh, well, maybe not your waste yet. It just kind of depends on how the sellout the crop is. I think there's going to be places that are going to be uh, ready to go ahead and be sent into the lab for ear waste. Oftentimes, that's not happening until the October report. Those ear samples are being sent in at the end of September. Uh, but we might have some places that actually do have ear waste just because of the advanced development of some of this crop. So September, you know, when you think about data coming our way in the ag industry, uh, we're going to get that uh, a new yield estimate on both corn and beans uh, and updated supply and demand numbers. And then later in the month is the big one. We're going to get our September stocks report. And that's going to kind of put a bow on 2021 production from both corn and soybeans uh, as we kind of get through the end of the marketing year that ends in a couple days. USDA's marketing year is September 1 to the end of August. We're going to get a look back at total demand, total supply, total production, uh, all the way back into the 2021 crop year. And if history repeats itself, last year was a pretty big surprise. And one of the one of the pieces that a uh, a potential surprise is the the process again. It's important to remember the odds that the farmer really went from above average selling pace in the first quarter of this year to below normal selling pace in the second quarter. I find hard to believe. High prices have brought out crops that we didn't know was there before. So that's a caveat to that. But again, if history repeats itself, I think we could see some cuts in the September report uh, to maybe reflect a little bit closer what continues to be a very firm cash market on old crop corn and soybeans. So um, how does the pro farmer estimates kind of historically jive with what it actually ends up being, how accurate has Pro Farmer generally have been in the past? <clears throat> well, they will publish their nightly estimates. You know, I'm going to uh, break these two out. The daily tour samples versus the Pro Farmer private estimate. Mm -hmm. uh, the tour samples have a, a you know, a, not a benchmark, but a, a measured spread of historically what the spread is from measurements versus USDA numbers, okay? So it's not about if you get through, let's just say you get through Iowa, easy math, you, have, you get a 200 bushel an acre sample, but your historical spread, you're about 15 bushel light, perhaps. Those, those spreads are kept in consideration when looking at the variances and differences from tour results versus USDA. I don't know what the uh, accuracy level is of Pro Farmers actual yield survey, uh, and this isn't against them or anybody else that puts out a uh, puts out a yield estimate. I would say that's a better indicator of the direction or the belief of a direction of a crop. And in the year that we're in, I mean, I, I would be. Um, this is maybe what scares me the most, Joe. What if? <laughs> What if we're all wrong and mm -hmm. the yield estimates actually go up from the USDA? And don't rule that out because at the end of the day, you're, you're still getting random data samples, right? You're getting farmer survey and you're getting in the field, but you never know. You, there's, it, there's no you really certainty. Don't. Yeah, there's no certainty that the production is going lower. Last the, year, prob the, the probability of production going lower is very, very high. 
Gotcha. Because last year when I went out and looked at my fields, I we had a really dr- the driest June I've ever seen. We uh, the creek behind my uh, shop here went dry in June, and and nobody we we've never seen that. And then we started getting some rain in July, and when I went out there at the end of August, I was really disappointed at what I was seeing. And then when we got in there to harvest it, it was mind-boggling what what was actually there. It it was a way better crop than what I thought it was going to be. And my uh, the agronomist that does all my scouting, he gives me yield estimates. Uh, samples all my fields, and I kind of take them with a grain of salt. And like you said, I use it as a kind of a bellwether for direction. If if the estimate was more than it was last year, well, then it's probably going to be a little better than it was last year, and vice versa. Yep. <clears throat> now it's a great conversation to have about you know yield estimates and direction of the crop and such. But I think what's most important to kind of put a lid on all of that is historically the market just flat out might not care about a tour and all private yield estimates. That is always the risk. And quite frankly, it felt like maybe this year the tour results, one of your larger boots on the ground views of what's actually happening, it might have got some attention that created a little bit of nervousness or a little bit of more uncertainty because you think about the calendar and the production of a corn crop primarily by August and September are, are the, the fear or the uncertainty level on having a good crop on a table. is typically gone. We know we have a pretty good crop coming our way. Yeah. You got some variances in yield, but as a whole, you know that the crop is coming. And that's, I think, where a lot of your seasonal market tendencies have kicked in before. You have a farmer that is comfortable with the crop coming their way, and they liquidate the balance of their old crop corn stock, and you get to the front end of harvest, and the crop is okay or good or, or really good, and I don't have space to hold all this grain, so I have to go dump more on the market. That's what creates your seasonal tendencies that have typically just been very, very accurate from kind of July 15th into the, uh, you know, quote unquote, harvest low, middle of October timeframe. So this year, like I said, it kind of did feel a little different. It felt like maybe the market has some, um, some question marks, but you can't lose sight that we do have a couple other bigger things happening in the market. The flooding in China, oftentimes people want to talk about the dryness in China. Well, facts are facts. It's not dryness that's hurting their crop. The flooding is what's hurting their crop. <laughs> Where it's dry, it's not big corn production areas. Where it's flooding, it's some of their biggest corn production areas. And on top of that, you obviously have a continued hot and dry spell that is daily harvesting corn out of Europe. So a combination of some fear of China corn production dropping and the fear of the uh, EU corn production dropping, still question marks in Ukraine, uh, inflation, and all these other uh, comments out of the Fed that seems to 
spook the equity market one day and energies are flying all around. I, I think we got more things going on in the market than just, oh, hey, it looks like our production or overstated our production to this point, and a tour is, is uh, confirming that. I mean, in years past, it almost seemed like if you just looked at the calendar of the crop tour and you measure that against the market, it's like almost always that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, at least Monday, Tuesday is higher. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we absolutely get buried. I'm pretty sure it was uh, Friday in 2016 or 17, one of the big, big crop years. And we were limit down on a Friday after the tour. That could have been a situation that the tour went out and confirmed that we got a record coming our way. It was probably 2017. I think that was a record crop for, for many, many states. Well, I know that it was surprising to me as uh, I was listening to the crop tour um, progress. I mean, I, I I guess I didn't realize that uh, there was gonna, there was that big of production issues to make that big of a dent in some of these state averages. Um, and yeah, it definitely seemed like the market was listening this year a little bit more. And I think everybody's radars up with uh, you know all these other macro things that mm-hmm. are affecting. This uh, in no way, shape, or form is trying to look back at what did I say last week and what has happened since then. Please, that do not mean it in that fashion. But the conversation last week was about some of these different things changing in front of us. From an inflation standpoint, from a natural gas issue, and how that relates into the fertilizer market and fear of commodities still being short worldwide, the EU weather conditions continuing to get worse, you know, speculation around just how much corn is China going to have to buy from the U.S. Um, and on top of that, yeah, U.S. weather was not that great. And probably the expectation of yield coming lower long term, which you always fight that issue of how much of that is priced in. I have my personal opinion, uh, and I, I typically hate giving these, but I'm telling you, I think the farmer is going to have a really good chance of selling a chunk of corn uh, around that $7 cash mark and maybe even a tad higher. But I'm going to have a hard time thinking that from a, a speculative money side, I think they're going to have a hard time establishing a big long position and get paid for that long position. You know, they're kind of, and that's at least for the next couple months. Maybe after the first of the year, that's a little bit different, but the farmer's going to be relinquishing a lot of grain in the next 60 to 90 days. And that's selling pressure coming against somebody that's trying to buy. And historically, trying to be long above $7 corn just doesn't work that well. Maybe an inflation trade can kick back in and rear its ugly head and drive commodity prices higher again. But I'm not so sure that on a strictly cut in production, drop in supply, that it can sustain significantly higher prices. So kind of my message here is, uh, in my opinion, I think the the bean crop is going to be okay. We know we have a balance sheet, and there's a whole bunch of emphasis put on independency on South America, specifically Brazil, raising a good bean crop. If that takes place and we have an okay yield, from a fundamental standpoint, beans are likely overpriced. But a lot of things have to happen before that's confirmed. 
On the corn side, though, it, it, it gets back to I don't think people can just count on a long-term sustained price. It could go nowhere just very violently, but still have opportunities in a firm cash market to be selling cash corn up and above 7 bucks. And quite frankly, if I went and pulled it up, I'm guessing that there's, uh, I would guess, half of or more of U.S. corn processors are showing above a $7 cash price for the last half of September right now. I know so we're, we're very close. Locally, locally, we got that going on for sure. Um, you know, ingredient in Chicago is posting a pretty healthy uh, basis bump for uh, the end of September. And I think even the first week in October, if I remember right, I mean, they're, they've raised that one up too. And uh, so, yeah, the moral of the story is know your cost of production. Yes. You know, the emphasis, the emphasis is, yeah, the emphasis of talking about $7 corn isn't just to pick a price point. The emphasis of talking about that is driven back to profitability that even if you're in a situation, you're sacrificing yield for price still pretty darn good mm -hmm. and maybe one of the things that just continues to get more <laughs> I don't know if interesting is the right word but a couple I don't know three four weeks ago I started watching CF Industries and their share price it went all the way down to 80 bucks a share after being like 112 113 when Russia invaded Ukraine and given the the lack of natural gas flowing into Europe and energy prices there being, what did I read this morning? The average consumer is spending 24 times the amount for yeah. electricity that they were from 2000, and, 2000 to 2020. That, that just blows my mind. I mean, <laughs> I've got your average listener, if they're like me, I mean, your energy bill might be, Call it a hundred, hundred and fifty bucks a month. Imagine a two thousand dollar bill per month to run your house. You know, this is an interesting conversation because I had uh, my office manager yesterday. I said, "Can you can you look back on our power bills and our natural gas bills from 2020, 21, 22, and just you know, I've never really looked at you know the price per kilowatt." Or you know the you know the price per therm, and 2021 uh, the natural gas was double what 20 was, and in 2022 what they're charging per therm right now is double what it was in 2021, and even even uh, when it comes to electric, it, we're we're looking at almost double what it was back in 2020 almost. Um, or not quite double, but it's up, and it, it's the the cost of energy is definitely higher. I I think that maybe propane would have been cheaper this year than what natural gas <laughs> yeah. is going to be. But I think my takeaway on that is, yeah, you're gonna the farm's gonna have a cost increase from energy and such. Kind of your what sometimes is just decimal point dust gets lost in all the paperwork, mm -hmm. but more importantly. CF Industries Thursday gapped above their high price back in the invasion, gapped above that price and traded over $120 a share on Thursday. 
it went from $80 a share to $120 a share, 50% increase in a month and a half time. What's the storyline behind that? It's likely speculation here. It's tied to people seeing, holy smoke, CF is going to have enormous earnings mm-hmm. and dividends and return on shares, so on and so on, that I'm, I'm a little perplexed that what they've done, that I'm wondering if the fertilizer low is in and how long that low is actually in. Because you're not going to recover from this natural gas shortage in a 30-day time frame. It's going to take a long time. I had priced so, some spring 32 on Thursday, well, actually on Tuesday, and then uh, he was going to go back and talk to his powers that be. He called me on Thursday and he said, I was just getting ready to call you to set up a meeting and get back, and I got a phone call. We jumped our 32 price, $35 a ton, um, and we only have 500 tons of sell, and then and then, and then then we're going to be in a stop-sell uh, situation. I'm like, where the heck did that come from? And, uh, you know, there, there's some weird stuff going on out there. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I think if anything for 2023, we talked about it last week too, and I think the importance is building. The margin that's on the table for next year's fertilizer in relation to the current new crop price for next year is favorable. Mm-hmm. And I just beg anybody that if you want to take on risk, there's better ways of taking on risk, in my opinion, than buying second highest fertilizer price that most will probably ever pay. Anybody that's pre-booking, uh, you know, buying that high a fertilizer price and not doing anything on the grain, the world can look a lot different by the time you wrap up your average price you receive on the 2023 corn crop. I mean, you're darn near two years old. You're almost two years away from knowing that number. So I just, I continue to share the message with the individuals we work with that when you're buying a fertilizer, we're just selling the grain. We're going to marry it up one for one, the same dollar amount and move on. Call it a sacrificial lamb. I don't, I don't know. There's still margin associated with it. Uh, it's a, still a pretty favorable situation uh, and quite honestly I would take 620 December corn that's pretty much where we're at right now I would take 620 December corn and over a thousand well eleven hundred dollar ton anhydrous every single year sign me up bring it on yeah, absolutely we're still looking at better margins than what we saw in the previous like five years when we were doing this before you were trying to scratch out okay how are how are we gonna how, how are we gonna stay in the black here and uh, so no, absolutely. And you know that history repeats itself eventually, that there will be a period of time where you might not even be able to avoid it all, but you're stung with higher input prices and a much lower price on the output. 2009 so, is still very, very fresh in my mind. And that's, you know, 08, we had unbelievable prices and, uh, and, and, you know, Input prices, of course, followed right up behind it, and then, you know, the floor came out from underneath of us, and we were selling 374 in that next fall. Yeah, here's, that was here's, here's, yeah, here's maybe my last comment on that. I still, I, some of the farms we work with, it's just human emotion. That man, why do I, I don't really want to sell 2023 corn because I'm looking at what's in front of me, and I see a a higher price, and you know, yield seems to be going uh, away. 
I just don't want to do it. And I just make a comment, and this is one man's opinion. When you retire, are you going to remember the price of fertilizer paid and the grain sold in the fall of 2022? Or are you going to be more focused on what your balance sheet looks like? Because if you want to zap working capital and equity, the fastest way to do it in the here and now is buying the high-priced fertilizer and watching grain price go lower. That's the very fastest way to damage the bottom line right here and now. And we don't have that much wiggle room on next year's crop. We're going to need to raise APH, and we're going to need to be averaging, you know, hopefully $6 plus. So when you need to hopefully average six bucks to, to turn around and make 10, 15% on your money, uh, you know, return on investment, uh, if you need to average six bucks, well, why can't we start at six bucks? Amen. Amen, Jared. Is there anything else you want to uh, add before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I know Chris, uh, him and I have talked a lot about margin protection in the past, and I believe you yep. just had somebody on just recently talking about margin protection. Uh, 99% of the producers I work with have margin protection this year. Uh, so if I want to talk out of both sides of my mouth, um, I sound like a little bit of a hypocrite saying this, but knowing the cost that we have coming our way for 2023, I'm teetering on the idea of margin protection for 23 from a pure cash standpoint just being too expensive. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a significant amount of area in the Corn Belt that margin protection of multi-pearl is going to be $100 to $120 an acre expense for next year versus 60 to 70 this year. That extra 50 bucks is really chewing in the margin. It would help tremendously if we got a you know a 30 40 cent rally between now and the end of september when the decision has to be made to carry margin protection for 2023 uh that would make the decision a lot easier because at the end of the day from a bang for your buck it still is probably the most valuable tool that we have in the toolbox versus going out there and protecting price and price only and then having you know, how do you go protect price? Are you using options? Are you using some type of over-the-counter product? Or are you just flat-out selling grain? Uh, you know, none of those are quote-unquote free. You know, you're locking yourself into some stuff. You're you're putting an expense on a table where margin protection is obviously providing some more variability of coverage from yield, input, and price. Uh, but I think our margin protection price is going to be, you know, let's just use simple math, six bucks. Six bucks times 95 percent is 570. So if inputs stay flat and yield just stay steady, right, with the county expected yield, if price is below 570, the yield trigger is going to go up. Yeah. Now it's just a matter of what do you think price can be next October, and that's obviously a crapshoot. So yeah, nobody knows that. It's what you don't want to do is wait for three weeks to have that conversation. Uh, you're the, almost halfway through the insurance averaging period for larger protection for next year. Um, I think that that conversation needs to happen with your agents now. So you have 20, 30 days to kind of stomach it and see, does it make sense 
uh, what are my other options instead of trying to rush that decision. Because oftentimes when we try to rush the decision, we don't make good decisions. That's a hundred percent. I started that conversation yesterday with my insurance agent. I had him send me over a bunch of stuff on that margin protection. And that's a, it's a tool in the toolbox and it, it may not be a good fit for everybody, but uh, you know, um, everybody needs to educate themselves on it and um, you know, make their decisions individually. You bet. Well, um, Jared, thank you so much for this conversation and um, informational as always. And I hope everybody has a fantastic week and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for the invite, Joe. Thanks, Jared.